President, this is General Hardesty's writing. I know it pretty well. That paper came from the Joint Chiefs meeting room. I can't make much out of this scrawl. Airlift Ecomcon, 40 K212s at site Y by 0700 Sunday. Chai, New York, LA, Utah. K212. Air Force Jet Transport, sir. What do you make of it? Well, they're obviously scheduled to lift this whole command out of site Y. That's what Henderson called the base near El Paso. Before the alert Sunday, and take those troops to Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, and Utah. You're suggesting what? I'm not sure, Mr. President. Just some possibilities, what we call uh, capabilities in military intelligence. You got something against the English language, Colonel? No, sir. Then speak it plainly, if you will. I'm suggesting, Mr. President, there's a military plot to take over the government. This may occur sometime this coming Sunday. Elections, both large and small, every time one rolls around, we hear that inevitable refrain of how never has an election been more important than this one. But with America's 2020 presidential race, however, regardless of where one falls within the political spectrum, I don't think any of us would disagree with that assessment this time. Seriously. (laughs) Now, combine that with the fact that never in the history of America has a race been more media savvy, media aware, or just plain intrusively media pain in the ass. (laughs) But that's the era in which we live now, where our media not only responds to and comments on what's happening in society, but also has a hand in shaping, or at the very least informing, and maybe even on a good day educating that society. And uh, hey, I mean, what kind of podcast show did you tune into here, right? Film has always been a prime mover and shaker of such contemporary fashion, mores, and for better or worse, plain and simple mainstream thought, more so than any other medium. Think about it. You know how popular culture views the Italian mafia with the music and the manner of speech and the quote-unquote dedication to family and all that, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that was pretty much created by Francis Ford Coppola's film The Godfather. Uh, less so from the book and more from the movie where Coppola deliberately styled it after you know Shakespeare plays Greek tragedy and Italian opera. Um, in fact, The Godfather opened when The Godfather opened. Law enforcement reports of the day took note of how into actual monsters were beginning to adapt much of their own style and verbiage, uh, you know, from the Corleone family in that film. Uh, in the same way, mainstream America would later pattern its fashion, music, and other touchstones of sort of cultural importance on everything from you know American Graffiti and Happy Days if you grew up in the seventies, <laughs> Eddie Hall, right, and then uh, Miami Vice and you know, My Free Purple Rain if you're from the eighties, and you know, so on, you know, throughout the decade. Mm-hmm. And if that kind of pop cultural influence is going to seep into the pores of America and the world at large, then think of how much film does so in the more sociopolitical sense. Uh, but this really isn't new. I mean, hell, in Shakespeare's Hamlet, the prince, eager to get his villainous uncle to collapse under the weight of guilt and confess to the murder of Hamlet's father, the former king, convinces an actor friend and his troupe to put on a command performance where elements of the murder are deliberately embedded within the story. And uh, there's Hamlet's favorite words in this regard, where he says, the play is the thing wherein I will catch the conscience of the king. Now, we remember how years ago, before a couple of presidential elections, Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel would do a show entitled Films Every President Needs to See Before Taking Office, which included such titles as Dr. Strangelove, Failsafe, and all the other ones you would expect. Now, on the eve of our 2020 election, we'd like to do our version directed more at the voters. Films Every Voter Needs to See before entering the ballot booth. 
I'm Craig Jamison of Gull Cottage Online. And I'm Jim Delaney from thelunchmovie.com. And welcome to another installment of The Movie Sneak. I didn't commit it. You were a fucking will when he was married. All right, all right, Kate. Okay. Even, even the most around. loose definition of committing adultery would not include that. Okay, you know, goddammit, she's right. You're right, Lion. In order for her to be committing adultery, she'd have to be married at the time. You're nitpicking in reverse now. Your husband may be an adultery, you're not fine. What you are is a sex-crazed home-wrecking machine. The female Warren Beatty. Runyon knows that you're clean of the perjury, but he's got the world thinking you're something out of a bad soap opera. You've goddamn crystallized the difference between being guilty and being responsible. Are you asking me to step down, sir? No, no. It's not going to be that easy for you, and it's not going to be that easy for them. I understand, and you know what? It's really just nobody's business. What is our fucking business? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? We are going to be sticking with films. I mean, there are a lot of films that are political. Uh, I mean, you could look at films like uh, Election or um, Citizen Ruth and, and, and such, and a great many documentaries. But we're going to shy away from those. We're going to stick specifically with films that take place within the halls of power, like the D.C. halls of power. And uh, Jim, I'm going to let you start. So kick it off, please. Cool. Okay. Well, uh, the first one I'm going to go with is uh, Seven Days in May uh, from 1964. It was adapted from a novel written in 1962 by two journalists who were sort of inspired by uh, discord between President Kennedy and the Joint Chiefs. Excuse me, President Kennedy and the, his Joint Chiefs of Staff following the Bay of Pigs invasion. Mm-hmm. Um, so this novel and then uh, the film sort of imagined a worst case scenario if if the Joint Chiefs and the President just totally fell out. Uh, it was, it was uh, directed by John Frankenheimer, who yeah. was coming right off of another, <laughs> one of our favorites again, yeah? uh, coming right off of another politically charged role, The Manchurian Candidate, which I got to tell you, it was a toss-up between this and that, but mm. Seven Days in the Way went out for me. Um, it had a screenplay by uh, uh, Rod Serling, is adapted by Rod Serling, you know, created one of the greatest social political allegories in TV history of the Twilight Zone. Mm-hmm. This is uh, Seven Days in May is about as far from allegory as you can get. Mm. Uh, so it you know, concerns a Marine uh, Corps colonel played by Kirk Douglas who uncovers a burgeoning plot to overthrow the president before the president can sign a nuclear treaty with the Soviet Union. Um, the attempt at the coup d'etat is being led by an Air Force general played by Burt Lancaster. Mm. And uh, the fact that it's, you know, people under 40 might not know this, everybody over 40 does, if you get a chance to see a Kirk Douglas and Burt Lancaster movie, just go. Got it. Just got trust it. it. <laughs> yeah. Right? Just, yeah. <laughs> so, um, 
at its most basic, uh, this movie's always been a favorite of mine just because it's a damn solid thriller. Um, I used to love it because it felt so uniquely of its time. Uh, you know, when I was, I think I first saw it on TV when I was about eight or nine years old in the seventies. Mm-hmm. Um, but a closer look, it feels prescient today, just because of you know a facet of the conspirators' plot involves taking over American TV and radio stations and the telephone uh, system. Mm-hmm. Um, this is an entire generation before the twenty-four hour news cycle, um, and now that we live in a world of constant media. Uh, it's all the more apparent that media control would be a vital component of any kind of plot like this, right? Mm-hmm. And seven days in May, the conspirators uh, aim to take the media. It's, it's like one of their main tools in the whole thing. You know, you think they're all Joint Chiefs of Staff. They're going to have the military at their disposal. Nope, they still know that this is a vital part. Esther. Yes, sir? Call the Pentagon. Tell General Scott I want to see him right away. Yes, sir. I think it's time we face the enemy, Mr. President. He's not the enemy. Scott, the Joint Chiefs, even the very emotional, very illogical lunatic fringe, they're not the enemy. The enemy is an age, a nuclear age. It happens to have killed man's faith in his ability to influence what happens to him. And out of this comes a sickness, I know, a sickness of frustration, a feeling of impotence, helplessness, weakness. And from this, this desperation, we look for a champion in red, white, and blue. Every now and then a man on a white horse rides by and we appoint him to be our personal God for the duration. For some men it was a Senator McCarthy. For others it was a General Walker. Now it's a General Scott. Presidents Trump and Obama both had their own relationships with the media. Each had a certain TV and radio network that favored them and presented them in a positive light. Each contended with an adversarial network. Um, each has used social media to an unprecedented to give us sort of unprecedented access to, you know, the president's most immediate thoughts. So even more recently, we see certain media outlets and individual reporters even being dismissed and outed by the White Mm. House as fake news. Um, So the takeover of media predicted in seven days in May, you could almost say that it's sort of already begun Mm. with media makers either having to play along uh, and acquiesce to the White House and to to other halls of power. Um, Otherwise, journalists might just not have the access that they need to do their jobs. It always used to be just sort of a given a given yeah right mm-hmm. um so you know uh, uh seven days in may warned us that a war for hearts and minds could be fought without a shot being fired mm. uh and the manner in which some politicians from the local to the international have chosen to use social media and have chosen to use uh, uh broadcast tv and cable tv it uh, should make us much more aware of the warnings of this movie and that's that's why it's i mean if i could only pick one this would be my one well, it's kind of funny uh, that you start with Seven Days in May because I'm going to start with 13 Days. Nice. Uh, uh, from 2000, directed by, Ronald, uh, God, uh, directed by Roger Donaldson. Say that three times fast. And uh, <laughs> it stars Bruce Greenwood as JFK, Stephen Culp as Robert Kennedy, and Kevin Costner as White House assistant Kenny O'Donnell, from whose point of view the story is essentially told. And as you could summarize from the title, uh, the story takes place in that near two weeks before the Cuban Missile Crisis. You know, last summer I read a book, The uh, the Guns of August. Mm. I wish every man on that blockade line read that book. It's World War I, 
was 13 million killed. It was all because the militaries of both alliances believed they were so highly attuned to one another's movements and dispositions, they could predict one another's intentions. But all the theories were based on the last war. And the world and technology had changed and those lessons were no longer valid. But it was all they knew, so the orders went out. Couldn't be rescinded. And your man in the field, his family at home, they couldn't even tell you the reasons why their lives are being destroyed. But why couldn't they stop it? What could they have done? Here we are, 50 years later. I think one of their ships uh, resists the inspection. And we shoot out its rudder and board. They shoot down one of our planes in response. So we bomb their anti-aircraft sites in response to that. They attack Berlin. So we invade Cuba. And they fire their missiles. Now, interestingly, what originally, I mean, there's a thousand things I could say about the film, but sticking to our main target uh, of conversation here, how, why it was originally taken with the film was, while it has the same title as the 1969 book by Attorney General Robert Kennedy, which is a phenomenal book, um, the film is not based on that. It's based on the 1997 book, The Kennedy Tapes, Inside the White House During the Cuban Missile Crisis, and the bulk of the dialogue in the film is actually taken from those White House tapes. Uh, the RFK book actually was adapted into a 1974 TV movie, kind of a play for television, The Missiles of October, uh, starring William Devane as JFK, Martin Sheen as Robert Kennedy, and the cast also had Howard DeSilva, Stacey Keach, Harris Yulin, James Hong, Ralph Bellamy, and a bunch of other people. Now, interestingly, what I love about 13 Days the Film, as well as the Robert Kennedy book of the same name, is the the whole team of rivals scenario with seven days in May? You were talking about how you know after the Bay of Pigs, how it was inspired by the post Bay of Pigs thing, where there was a sharp schism between the Joint Chiefs and the Kennedy White House. Now, interestingly, what I love about seven days in uh, seven days in May, what I love about getting my political films mixed up, thirteen days is. Uh, interestingly, while Steven Spielberg's film Lincoln uh, is based on Doris Kearns Goodwin's book, um, A Team of Rivals, and, and I remember hearing about that book and watching an interview with her when she was on The Daily Show before the book came out, and it went on to win a Pulitzer, what I was a little, I love the Spielberg film, what I was a little disappointed with is it didn't get into as much with the whole team of rivals aspect, uh, the whole idea that what Lincoln did back then and what Kennedy does in 13 days um, is that even though he knew there were people who were antagonistic to his administration, he brought in people he knew would disagree with him because he wanted all of the best minds and experts on a particular topic gathered in the same room because this was too important for partisanship. Um, that's the thing that first blew me away by seven. God, I keep saying seven days of May. <laughs> blowing me away about 13 days and the Robert Kennedy book as well. And why I think that is so pertinent for today is kind of obvious. Uh, we have an administration now and anyone who knows me, anyone who knows Jim, you know, there's no way in the world we can do this particular episode and not express some political opinions. <laughs> it just ain't going to happen. So, I mean, if you don't want to hear it, Okay, you can just scroll on past. <laughs> but the current administration is just a travesty of 
mono a tragedy tragedy of what monolithism if you can use that word um anyone who has disagreed with the administration has either been fired or has resigned and that is a borderline tyrant state you i mean the the reason for the 12 member jury system the reason for the three branches of government the reason for a supreme court is that whole Solomon-like, quote-unquote, wisdom of there being, you know, in the presence of many, there is wisdom. You know, there's a story that there's your side, there's my side, and there's a truth, which is probably somewhere in the middle. And that's what I like, what I love about 13 Days, and what I think is extremely pertinent uh, for the election that we're about to enter right now. Um, I am infuriated about how the Trump administration in particular and the GOP in general are extremely closed and uber-partisan these days. Um, Very often when you hear people talk, you keep hearing people use the word they, 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 when we're talking about other Americans. But I'm also very frustrated when I hear Democrats and people that consider themselves more liberal kind of do the same thing. I mean, I don't want to live in a world that is ultra-right. I don't want to live in a world that's ultra-left either. And I am not one of those people who, you know, when Trump was elected, unfriended everyone that I knew on Facebook who voted for Trump. Um, There were two people (laughs) over the past four years, and that was simply because they were saying some things that were just so racist and outside the sphere of humanity. And I said, look... One was a man, one was a woman. And I said, you got to rethink that. Otherwise, we can no longer have any discussion here. But most of the people, a lot of people that I grew up with who voted for Trump the last time around, they have serious doubts about voting for him again. And part of that is because, I like to think, is because I've had so many arguments with them where I say opinion doesn't matter here let's use the constitution let's use legal precedents and is what this administration doing does it fall into the line fall in the line i mean people say that's unconstitutional all the time and i happen to say well i just happen to have a copy of the constitution right here at my desk i assume you have yours since you're throwing that phrase around let's check and see what it says and 99 out of 100 people don't even know what they're talking about they just hear that phrase so many times so i do believe The nation itself can be a team of rivals. There are certain things you don't excuse. There are certain things you have to call out. There are certain things that are plain and simply wrong. But you have to have a great many different kinds of minds in order to get anything done. And uh, that's what I love about 13 Days. I'm the wrong one, Wanda. Why? They were expecting Black Messiah. You can tell them what they got, eh? What they've got is a black president. That's more than they've ever gotten. May I remind you, not by election. And the rest of the country is going to want an Uncle Tom. Well, I can't be what everybody wants me to be. And I'm a little afraid that I'm going to cause this country more chaos than it really deserves. Well... I don't give a damn about the rest of this country. Their sensitivities, their racial hang-ups. Do me a favor, will you please? Stop being the pedantic professor with an aversion to causes. Stop being Senator Ineffectual. There are 15 million people out there tied to you by the color of your skin. And if you go under, they drown with you.
Sir, Congress is considering four articles of impeachment. Yeah. For what? They're very serious charges, sir. First, abuse of power. Yeah. Second, the obstruction of justice. Yeah, what else? Third, the failure to uh, cooperate with the Congress. Yeah. And uh, last, uh, bombing Cambodia, sir. They can't impeach me for bombing Cambodia. The president can bomb anybody he likes. That's true. <laughs> well, well, we'll win that one, sir, but the other three... Hey, you know, Fred, they sell tickets. It's wrong. They sir. sell tickets to an impeachment like a damn circus. <laughs> okay, so they impeach me. Well, fuck them. <laughs> I take my chances in the Senate. Yes, we should. This damn thing. Well, then, sir, we'll uh, have to deal with the possibility of removal from office, loss of pension, possibly, possibly even prison. Yeah. Well, plenty of people did their best writing in prison. Like Gandhi, Lenin. That's right. What I know about this country, I could rip it apart. So if they want to. They want a public humiliation, that's what they'll get. Yes, they will. I will never resign this office. Uh, the next one I'm going to go with is, uh, and this one even surprised me to choose it a little bit, is uh, Oliver Stone's Nixon from 1995. Mm. Um, and, and I'll admit it, I was a little underwhelmed. Uh, when when this movie first came out, uh-huh. I thought it was well crafted. I thought it was incredibly well acted all around, mm-hmm. um, but it lacked this sort of suspense and soaring rhetoric of Stone's courtroom thriller JFK. Right, right. But then, much as JFK still thrills me as an artistic achievement, um, I, over time I find it sort of diminished by the liberties that Stone took uh-huh. with 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 facts and with. Chronology and stuff. He, mm-hmm. he took some liberties there that, that actually kind of took the air out of it for me. Mm-hmm. That even when the soaring rhetoric comes, I'm like, oh, okay, but that's not really, you know, for example, the beautiful uh, uh, closing argument that Kevin Costner makes as Jim Garrison. Mm-hmm. Jim Garrison didn't actually make the closing argument. Mm-hmm. So, you know, things like that just kind of gnaw at me for JFK. Meanwhile, Nixon has grown for me over time. And it's, you know, it's not a cradle to the grave uh, uh, biopic, but it, it just focuses primarily on, on the rise and fall and rise again and fall again of Nixon's, mm-hmm. of Richard Nixon's political career. Mm-hmm. Um, it We follow him from from vice president to candidate for presidency and then like the 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 uh, slings and arrows of his of his presidency um and i expected i mean you know stone back then was kind of regarded as this this you know liberal with his hair on fire i was expecting a (laughs) one-note hatchet job so was i actually before i first saw the film yeah which and i and i think that might i don't know if that was even my disappointment but it was just it was just it's what i expected and i got something else so maybe that's another reason why i didn't immediately love this movie and it Uh took me a bit to come back to it and and uh, I ended up, God forbid, it's something that I never expected, sympathizing with yeah. Nixon in some moments. Um, uh, Stone script, but then this also this immersive performance by Anthony Hopkins. Like he's sensational, just, yeah, he really right? is. Right? I mean, he's coming off of uh, Silence of the Lambs just a few years earlier. You you don't, you know, a lot of times with an actor of that caliber, you get stuck in, like everybody looks at Pacino and they think of Set of a Woman and Godfather, no matter what else he does, mm-hmm. right? But you look in, you look at Hopkins in that movie. You're not thinking of Hannibal Lecter at all. You're not thinking of any of his other roles. You're just, right. you're just seeing Richard Nixon, right? Um, and and you know the thing, the thing about this is that you know the sense that I got from Stone and 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 Hopkins was that even when I could disagree with Nixon, 
his his perspectives, his opinions were always clearly stated and deeply felt. Like he mm-hmm. he he believed he didn't think he was doing evil. He didn't think he was controlling the world or anything. He just had his Quaker upbringing and he felt that he was doing right. Um, so you know, we follow how his campaigns have failed and succeeded and failed again. Um, there's this single scene that I feel captures the whole movie for anybody who hasn't seen it, and and even if you have seen it. Um, and it's not only captures the whole movie, but I think it's a standout in the careers of both Stone and Hopkins. Uh, in the middle of the night, Richard Nixon visits uh, a group of students. You know, or I'm going yeah, on. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> visits a group of students. God, I'm getting a lump in my throat. I'm such a sap these days. After I turn fifty. Okay, so Richard Nixon is <laughs> sorry. So Nixon go. Uh, lump. Nixon goes to visit a group of students and young people who are encamped around the Lincoln Memorial in protest of the Vietnam War. He goes in the middle of the night um, to talk to them and to listen. And he's he's sent away after this embarrassing attempt of his to use college football as sort of a point of conversational commonality. Mm-hmm. And it just falls on dead ears. You know, he's just trying to he's just trying to build a bridge. Mm-hmm. Here's my topic. Let's go to this, and then we'll get around to your concerns. But they're you know the the these protesters just immediately what the hell's the matter with you and 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 the whole thing just collapses mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and it's you know it's maddening that in that moment a president could be that tone deaf but it's also a sad moment because he really is he's trying he's trying but he can't and, yeah right in a way that we don't normally see especially recently see a lot of presidents yeah. doing um so you know if and you almost get the ceiling that man if if both sides could have just held in a little longer they might have cleared that sort of awkward invitation to dance and actually gotten down to the groove mm. right but the, but but he gets just gets shut down and 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 he just leaves feeling looking deflated and old mm-hmm. you know it's the first time we really see him looking i mean yeah they tr- they play up the the debate with him and jfk on tv and they make him look bad there but here's where we just see the air out of his tires mm-hmm. and you know um, and it, yeah, I, I felt bad for him. Um, this scene sort of encapsulates the whole room movie and reminds us that, you know, when a president can engage with those with whom they have fundamental disagreements, right? And and now when I think of that, it reminds me of uh, during the 2016 presidential race, uh, President Obama was in a, a, a PBS town hall and a question came to him. This is in June 2016. question comes to him about gun rights. And... Um, it could have it could have gone as wrong as Nixon's attempt to you know use football as a as a touchstone, but it didn't. And you know if you can you can find it online. It's on YouTube. You find Obama from June 2016 um, talking about gun rights with a with a with a constituent who is concerned about having his guns taken away. And um, scenes like that with President Obama where things went for my money about as right as could have gone. Even mm-hmm. the questioner seemed satisfied. Mm. Um, and then you know. Nixon here trying like hell uh, uh, at the Lincoln Memorial reminds us that it's the, both these things remind us as a president's job to connect with and unite the people of the United States. They can mm-hmm. stumble. They can fall flat on their face. Mm-hmm. But the next day they get right up and get, that's the damn job. That's the job, yeah. Right? And the job, is, it's, it, if, if you can't do that job, that's even fine for a little bit. But the job is not to actively do the opposite. All right. And um, it's kind of refreshing to see, you know, a president who keeps trying. I guess that's my real reason for picking Nixon. Cool. Um, It's funny how we kind of um, seem to be in sync here because, you know, the first one had to do with um, the 60s, Bay of Pigs, and then Mimes Cuban Missile Crisis. Your second one had to do with the president. My second one had to do with the president 
Sort of. <laughs> I'm going to go with uh, the film The Man from 1972, directed by Joseph Sargent. Uh, stars James Earl Jones as the first black president of the United States. We're very, very proud, Doug. If you could just say a few words to them. I think of something appropriate, Otis, and do it by proxy for me. They'd like to hear something from you, Mr. President. All I can tell them is that two men died tonight and a third retired to a wheelchair. And that's not overcoming anything, Otis. That's just God disposing. So, you thank them for me? Sure, Doug. Good night. And God bless you. Mr. President. How are you, Dad? Numb. Numbness being a uh, defense mechanism. Against what? Against breaking into small pieces. It's nice to have you in the nation's capital for something other than a protest march. I guess I'll have to cool that sort of thing for a while. I think maybe so. You are now a member of the nation's first family, small though it may be. And it's kind of interesting. Uh, hell of a cast um, in, in the film. Uh, Burgess Meredith, uh, um, Martin Balsam, uh, Joseph Cotton, on and on and on. Um, now, the thing is, um, well, okay, the basic premise is that uh, it's based on a novel by Irving Wallace. And most people are familiar with Irving Wallace, at least if you grew up in the era that we did. And the screenplay was by Rod Serling, in fact, who also wrote the screenplay to Seven Days in May. And like Seven Days in May, it's one of those movies where you have a mostly a bunch of people in a room talking which could be boring but isn't <laughs> because of what they're talking about and because of that rapid fire super intelligent rod serling dialogue uh in this film um after an unfortunate accident takes the life of the president and the speaker of the house at the same time uh and the vice president is ill possibly terminally and passes on the office of president the next in line of succession is the president pro tempore of the Senate, who happens to be James Earl Jones. And at the time the book and the movie came out, there had never been, well, obviously there had never been a black president, um, but there had also never been a president in office who wasn't elected. But just about a year and a half, two years later, that happened with Gerald Ford when Richard Nixon resigned. Uh, so there were two things that the movie kind of got the jump on a long time ago before they really happened. Now, what originally grabbed me about it, um, I mean, I've always been a fan of director Joseph Sargent. Yes, he's directed movies like Jaws, The Revenge, <laughs> and, and even fun movies like uh, White Lightning. But I've always dug him more for his really intelligent and simultaneously entertaining movies like The Taking of Pelham 123, MacArthur, and especially uh, Colossus, The Forbin Project, Mandela and the Clerk, the 1989 film with Portier and Kane, uh, The Night That Panicked America. And a lot of those films are movies about people sitting in rooms talking, you know, but they're talking about very volatile things. And, you know, what I, yeah, what I dug about the man when I first saw it, and which I still think is pertinent for today, is there's a lot, while there's a lot of acid tossed in the film about systemic racism in America, uh, and 
even though it sounds like, wow, moving from 1972, getting into that, keep in mind this was the era where we had shows like All in a Family and movies like Brian's Song, both of those from 1971, one year before The Man aired. It was a TV movie, by the way. Well, it was originally filmed as a TV movie and then got a limited theatrical release. Um, But even Ernest Gaines' novel, The Autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman, which was turned into a TV movie in 1974, was written in 1971. So around this time, early 70s, there was a lot of stuff going on in the United States. The Black Panthers were very active. Uh, obviously, you had the whole Vietnam thing. And uh, there were a lot of protests going on in the streets. Now, the interesting thing that I always come about the man is, in the story, the president's daughter is a black protester. Uh, sort of a veiled reference to the Black Panthers, I've always believed. And while the story definitely tosses acid as systemic racism in America, it also features a great deal of back and forth, which I would say is the heart of the film, between James Earl Jones and his daughter, as both father and daughter, and as president and protester. And some of that talk now and then exposing how he as an older black man, can't see where some of the younger black folks are coming from, but also exposing how some protesters can have a tendency to lose sight of the real cause. And that I didn't expect. And uh, to this day, when I watched the film, and it is a hard film to find, it's never officially been released on video, but once in a blue moon, it'll turn up on a cable station, so keep an eye out for it, and I believe you can probably find a bootleg copy somewhere, but you didn't hear that from me. Uh, (laughs) But um, I think it's important. I mean, every now and then, I, as an African-American, will have to call out a little bit of hypocrisy on the side of my peeps. You know, um, like I say, guys, you know, we need to do this, but we can't do that. Uh, there was there's a person in particular I'm thinking of right now. They were doing some marching and the cause is great. But I started noticing over time the focus of their posting started to drift from the cause to them. You know, there was always a picture of them in front of a group of people. And it's like, hmm, somebody else took this picture. And it started to turn more into this person's daily show of me protesting and losing sight of what the protest was about. And if you talk to people in the African-American community, there's a lot of, quote unquote, so-called African-American leaders down through the past that um, you know, a lot of black folks have said that guy's just out to get his own hustle. And um, so the movie, The Man, like I said, while it brings up the whole systemic racism thing, it kind of gets into that, too. And that I did not expect. That I do think is very, very important, because when we whatever group we're in, whether it's Black Lives Matter, whether it's Me Too, whether it's the um, uh, uh, equal marriage, when we lose sight of the cause and we fail to call out any kind of hypocrisy within our own group we kind of end up starting to act like the people that we're protesting you know uh, and i brought that point up to some people uh, on more than one occasion and that's you know we don't want to become that which we despise and i love how the movie the man gets into that way back in the 70s you know mr finley you've been a great service to the party <laughs> Yeah, but you didn't believe Adolf the first time he came in, did you? There's only one thing that's worrying me, Mr. Findlay. What's that? You must have paid him a lot of money. I think the party should give it back to you. You're not going to turn that house painter loose with all that money. Oh, no. I got him in protective custody. You have your own machine, Mr. Findlay. It's a national organization the boys and I belong to. 
We got to stay undercover for a while, but we're doing a beautiful job. We got a great plan mapped out to educate the public. What do you want the public to believe, Mr. Finlay? I want them to believe in our type of 100% Americanism. Now, 100% American is... White. Right. No foreign born. Right. The right kind of religion. Exactly right, Mrs. Morley. I guess I know where you stand. You're leaving this house now or I'm going to throw you out. I'm counting three. Mrs. Morley! Going. Mr. Finley! You forgot your hood! Napoleon once said, when asked to explain the lack of great statesmen in the world, that to get power, you need to display absolute pettiness. To exercise power, you need to show true greatness. Such pettiness and such greatness are rarely found in one person. I look upon the events of the past weeks, and I've never come so to grips with that quotation. And I'm not talking about those of you who sided against your party leadership. I'm talking about those of you who were patriots to your party, but traitors to the necessary end result. That of righteousness, the truth, the concept of making the American dream blind to gender. And you know, I am not free of blame. Right from the start, I should have come down here, pointed a finger your way, and asked you, have you no decency, sir? Mr. Runyon, you may walk out on me, you may walk out on this body, but you cannot walk out on the will of the American people. Okay, my, my final choice is The Contender from 2000, mm. uh, written and directed by Rod Lurie. Um, he uh, he he wrote this one in the wake of uh, President Clinton's scandal with Monica Lewinsky, uh, and it was also apparently like around around the the time that his own daughter was becoming politically awakened and aware, mm. and um, and he just wanted to present a, a positive female character for his daughter and for her generation. Um, so the story stars Joan Allen, who, by the way, also played Pat Nixon and Oliver Stone. That's right, yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, as an Ohio senator. Um, and Jeff Bridges is the president. Uh, and Bridges' vice president dies while in office. And there's this strong expectation that he's going to nominate a, a governor, played by William Peterson, mm-hmm. for his next VP. Um, uh, this scene-chewing congressman, played by Gary Oldman, mm-hmm. um, is, is he's running the confirmation hearings? He's all set to to confirm this governor, but then Bridges throws a curveball, nominates uh, the senator played by Joan Allen uh, to be the first woman vice president, um, and so Gary Oldman's congressman sets out to sort of character assassinate um, Joan Allen 
uh, and undermine the president's nomination. And it's, you know, pretty much what you and I are used to seeing from Supreme Court combinations, <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. uh, basically from ever since Clarence Thomas, right? Mm-hmm. And um, uh, this might even feel like an object. There's, there, there are other political movies that I enjoy more, um, but this one just... It's 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 of its time, but it's even more of our time, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I totally uh, because know. Because this, because these sort of confirmations have become uh, such a blood sport, yeah. Um, to the point where where the, you know the entrenchment happens <clears throat> even before a nomination is made, and now if there's a, a you know even during Brett Kavanaugh's hearings, um, there were days where it wasn't juicy enough, wasn't bloody enough, <laughs> and people whined, right? And and I almost wonder if you know maybe <clears throat> if Merrick Garland had had uh, any skeletons in the closet, if we actually would have gotten to see that confirmation hearing, mm. it's probably that he was just so so competent and so bland that nobody <laughs> want you know he's just here's a reliable guy that's not going to be any fun. Let's not even talk about him, right? But as as soon as there's as soon as there's a fight to be had, then then everybody tunes in, it. yeah, yeah. So <laughs> you know, the, the, uh, the, and the contender is you know it's 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 just all around solid. Um, uh, Allen and Bridges and Oldman were nominated for this or that award. Uh, throughout that that whole award season, mm-hmm. um, it's it's not quite as frustrating as watching the news. But, <laughs> pretty pretty uh, close, yeah. Basically, yeah, yeah, and that's that. May, maybe that's why I like it because it's like watching the news where you know it's going to end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's it's uh, an, another you know in the same as I mentioned the twenty four hour news cycle in seven days in May. This is steep in the middle of you know of that era, um, and again it, it's another one that just feels of its time, but even more so. I would say out of my three choices, I would say this is the most timeless one because each passing year just makes this movie more true. And, you know, Rod Lurie was trying to show the difficulty a woman would have being confirmed for an office like this. But now you you could be a woman, you could be gay, you could be uh, this or that religious denomination, you can be this or that uh, uh, ethnic or, or racial makeup. You could be, you know, a, of a racial makeup where you're born and raised here and you're still told to go back to your country <laughs> by people from the opposing party, right? So, you know, the, this movie was aiming to show a, a strong woman character, but I think now it just it represents uh, anybody who's not a white man who's tried to undergo this process. Um yeah, it's not as it's not as uh, soaring as some other choices I could have made, but it's just solid and honest, and one one I think is worth you seeing before you vote because we're only going to be seeing more of it. Yep, big <laughs> you know, time. It's just a good microcosm of how that looks for us these days. Mm. Well, it's funny. Like I said before, we definitely seem to be in sync on all these choices uh, <laughs> because uh, I couldn't describe my next choice better than saying. Um, it seems even more timely today, uh, maybe so than when it first came out. It also features a main f- female character as the lead. Uh, it's an oldie. Uh, I'm going with The Farmer's Daughter from 1947, directed by H.C. Potter. Stars Loretta Young, Joseph Cotton, and Ethel Barrymore. And I first caught it maybe 20 years ago, late one night, early a.m. on Turner Classic Movies. I mean, the premise sounded interesting. I expected a pleasant old black and white 
romantic comedy and it is pleasant it isn't black and white it is romantic it is very humorous i did not expect it to be as politically pointed deliberately so as it is i mean the basic premise uh is that uh, Katie, the daughter of Swedish immigrants, you know, the proverbial farmer's daughter, or uh, she leaves her family farm for nursing school in the big city. You know, um, through a sequence of events, she loses her money. You know, she, she gets hustled, she gets ripped off. And instead of going back home and asking the family for help, she takes a job as a maid, uh, which is in the home of this political power broker played by Ethel Barrymore. Now, right from the get-go, we have a woman pulling political strings here, which is pretty fascinating for a film made in 1947. And her son is uh, a member of the U.S. House of Representatives, Joseph Cotton. And when a congressman passes away, kind of like in the in the, um, the contender, <laughs> there's a mad rush, mad dash circus of events that which happens to replace him. And the local party had to select a new person to take his place. They choose a particular person whom Katie is familiar with, but not in a good way. <laughs> and at a town hall meeting, you know, where this guy is speaking, she asks him some really pointed questions, which he can't answer. You have a question, miss? I'd like to know how you, with your record, can ask these people to vote for you. Well, I'll match my record with any man's. This record that Mr. Finley will match with anyone's is as follows. In 1930, Alderman Finley's brother-in-law, Oscar Nordstrom, started getting the snow cleaning contract and received it every year for the 10 years that Mr. Finley sat on the city council. And in 1932 and 1933, Alderman Finley said the bread lines were costing the city too much money and even went to the extent of trying to put through a bill to force apple sellers to buy licenses. And in 1934... The speakers in support of Mr. Finley had barely concluded when a young woman rose from the floor to challenge the party's selection. Been checking since then on her identity. And this beautiful blonde is a second maid employed in Congressman Morley's palatial home on the lakefront. And it kind of causes an uproar, and it garners the attention of the press. And um, someone kind of half-jokingly mentions, boy, you would probably make a better candidate than this guy. (laughs) And the idea grows, and it gains steam, and eventually she does become a candidate. uh, While she's still working in the home of Ethel Barrymore, who is backing this other guy. So in a way, she's almost the Gary Oldman character (laughs) from The Contender. And... um, the thing is, she is learning more and more about government as the story progresses. So it's kind of got this Capra-esque aspect to it. Now, that's all pleasant. That all, all of that I kind of expected. What I didn't expect and what I was super surprised about the first time I saw it was how the person that she's running against <clears throat> as the story progresses, I mean, he's, it's post-war America, and he's very America first. Mm, you know, and as the story progresses, he actually seems more and more kind of white supremacist without calling himself one. Some of the things he says, and it kind of gets into immigration and how now she's Swedish, she's white, blonde hair. You know, she should be on a box of, you know, a box of cereal or something. You know, and 
she starts getting flack because her parents weren't born in the United States. Um, you know, there's the whole, you know, born here, America firsters. And it gets to a point where by the end of the film, he has support from other people who aren't specifically called white premises, supremacists, but you know they are. And there's even a scene where when everybody else starts to realize what's going on, including Ethel Barrymore and the other people who were behind this guy, he gets kicked out of the house and one guy takes the guy's coat, throws it at him and says, oh, you forgot your hood. <laughs> You know, and when I first saw that, I was like, holy crap. And need I say more why I think that is pertinent for today? <laughs> you know? <laughs> End of show, boom. See you next time nice. on the movie sneak. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That farmer daughter story has always stuck with me, especially for those uh, themes regarding immigration and uh, especially now, the whole white supremacist notion. Like I said, this movie is back in 1947. <laughs> yeah, so pretty powerful stuff for a light rom com. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, we decided we would do three films each, but we also, uh, before we started recording, said that we would. Um, Toss in a surprise one, one that the other one doesn't know about. Um, so what's your surprise, I guess we'd call it, um, honorable mention? Uh, well, my, my surprise one is in your hometown. Uh, uh, it's the musical 1776. <laughs> cool. Now, Mr. Adams, are these the acts of Englishmen? Not Englishmen, Dickinson. American. No, sir. Englishman. Please, Mr. Dickinson, unless you start banging, how is a man to sleep? <laughs> Forgive me, Dr. Franklin, but must you start speaking? How is a man to stay awake? <laughs> we'll promise to be quiet, sir. I'm sure everyone prefers that you remain asleep. If I'm to hear myself called an Englishman, sir, I assure you I prefer I'd remain asleep. Oh, now what's so terrible about being called an Englishman? The English don't seem to mind. Nor would I were I given the full rights of an Englishman. But to call me one without those rights is like calling an ox a bull. He's thankful for the honor, but he'd much rather have restored what's rightfully his. I'm not a huge musical fan, and I saw this first as, as a revival of the play. Um, um, I'm just, I'm drawing a blank. The movie was 74, right? Uh, 72, 72. 72, yeah. okay. Um, yeah, so I saw a revival of the play during the bicentennial year of 76, mm-hmm. 1976, right, when, when the whole country right. was red, white, and blue. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a straightforward, you know, you, you know this story from fourth grade, from sixth grade, from ninth grade, from you know, every, mm-hmm. every, every few years in junior high and elementary and high school history, you've heard a version of this story. It's just, it's, you know, it's the writing of the Declaration mm-hmm. of Independence. Um, and uh, part of the reason I chose this was because I couldn't choose Hamilton because it's not a movie yet. It's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a filmed event, uh-huh. which you can see on Disney Plus, and it's damn worth seeing, uh-huh. and I hope there's a movie someday. But uh, um, I would actually say these two are such perfect bookends. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and uh, 1776 looks like I mean it's, it's one of the most soft focused movies I've ever seen. yeah it really is isn't it right <laughs> I mean it looks it, it looks kind of like a 19 okay I'm gonna get some money now sorry friends I've, I've seen <laughs> where you gonna go Playboy, yeah. right that have that same soft focus cloudy isn't this pretty all the edges are blurry right it's but yeah I mean that was you know it's 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 
uh, visually it's a hagiography um the songs are almost comedy but it's it's people fighting like cats and dogs with smiles on their faces (laughs) and in hamilton they're fighting like cats and dogs um with even faster dialogue <laughs> and the thing I love about both of these films and the main the main reason I'm, I'm choosing 1776 is that you know while as we said at the beginning of the show about how you know every year we say or every election we say no election is as important as this one I think we you know within the past 20 years or more it also feels like everybody is saying the country has never been so divided as it, mm-hmm. as it is right now, right? Like every year, right. see, people say that more, and they act like it was never that way before. Right. right in 1776, probably more than any other movie I can think of off the top of my head, yeah. shows us that that's how it's always, always been. been. And we've been able to, and like you were mentioning about Lincoln and the and the um, the team of adversaries, it's. It's been that way, and still we manage to be that without being jerks to each other. Yeah. Right? And Vice President Pence mentioned in the debate the other night about how, how uh, uh, Justice Alito and Justice Ginsburg were pals and would go to operas together mm-hmm. and travel together and stuff. Never mind that. The Obamas and the Bush family yeah. are pals. Both generations of the Bush family. Uh, the Bush family and the Clintons mm-hmm. are pals. Right? Like, people manage to... They, oh, the, the Bidens and... and, and, and um um, uh, McCain, the McCain right, family. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Perfect. So you know, it's this is the true American way, um, and that's part of what I feel about seventy six. That's the, the main, the whole reason I'm choosing seventeen seventy six is to just show that this is us. We've always known it. Those of us who are paying attention have always mm-hmm. known it. Now, if you're if you're the kind of person who, you know, um, um. 58 years old and I've never voted in a president election but god damn it I'm voting in this one well you know you should have been up to speed buddy yeah uh-huh. <laughs> you know there's a whole lot of people that were hearing that about that, that from too and for any of us who actually have been up to speed and had been paying attention in second grade in fourth mm-hmm. grade in ninth grade and ever since um, this is this is who we are 1776 is who we are Hamilton is who we are and have always been and are going to continue to be the, the real challenge that that 1776 also reminds us is uh, how to keep being that and and not fall to a civil war. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's I mean it's it's a musical about our deep and dark and dirty soul and our um, our redeeming values. Mm-hmm. Now, interesting. Like I said, we're kind of in, in sync on all of these. Uh, yeah, none more so than this because my choice was 1776. Also, <laughs> no way. <laughs> yes, okay, it was. Good, I <laughs> uh, and I agree with you 100. percent Except for one thing. <clears throat> uh, early on, you said you know um, we all know this story, and I disagree. I think most Americans don't know this story, and I, maybe you even said it. Uh, I think most people know a version of this story. You know um, what I love um, about the film is. While it's got that hazy, you know, almost 70s porn look <laughs> to it, you know, um, there's a saying, and I forgot who said it, but um, they were talking about the Raymond Chandler-esque kind of character, about someone who can get their hands dirty and keep their soul clean, you know. Mm. And I kind of think of that phrase when I see this film, because uh, first of all, one of the things, I, I'm i not really a musical fan myself either, 
you know, although a couple of my favorite films have ended up being such, uh, Oliver in 1776. But um, 1776, um, both the Broadway play and the film, was written by Peter Stone. And I'm a big Peter Stone fan. He wrote the screenplay to The Taking of Pelham 123. He wrote uh, Charade. And just like those two movies, this movie is populated with fast-talking smartasses, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, uh, who say a lot of intelligent, witty, smartass stuff. I mean, I remember when I first saw it, I was shocked, pleasantly shocked, at how funny it was, you know. And I was also pleasantly shocked at how dirty it was and I don't mean dirty obviously in the 70s porn sense (laughs) you know but dirty in the fact that like you said these guys are like slugging it out why have you joined this incendiary little man this Boston radical this agitator this demagogue this madman you calling me a madman you You fribble! (laughs) You and your Pennsylvania proprietors. Oh, you cool, considerate men. You hang to the rear on every issue so that if we should go under, you'll still remain afloat. Are you calling me a coward? Yes, coward! Madman! Landlord! Lawyer! This is the Congress! Stop it, I say! The enemy's out there! No, Mr. Rodney, the enemy is here! Oh! That whole 13 days team of rivals thing, yeah, that's here. Now, I think, um, I think the big thing, um, in 1776, sometimes there's, to get anything done, it's gotta be compromise. And I think one of the most heartbreaking things in the film, um, I love how it points out that never before had their had a vote had to be unanimous. As soon as that uh, vote for the vote for independence being unanimous, a lot of people thought, okay, independence is dead. But now all of this jockeying and gamesmanship and chess begins and writing the declaration and all of the turmoil and that and then after it's written <laughs> it being re-edited and rewritten and things taken out and things added and finally you get to the horrible compromise of the slavery clause and um it's kind of like are we going to remove this clause so that we get the unanimous vote or are we going to leave it in and oh yeah are we going to remove this clause and get the vote or leave it in and not get the vote Obviously, the clause was taken out, and years later, America did plunge into a civil war. So, it didn't end there. There was a compromise, and it's kind of like, I like how the film says, no matter what you do, there's going to be repercussions. You know, so, yeah, I like that. It's not neat. It's not tidy. It's not the textbook uh, junior high school version of the writing of the Declaration of Independence. Um, and it's, it, it's just growing up in Philadelphia. I love how even though the film was shot in the studio and uses some opticals to, to reproduce Philadelphia, boy, they really did their homework. 
<laughs> because mm-hmm. I mean, I've been to Independence Hall a number of times. It's like, oh my God, they got that room down to a T. Even the park in the middle of, you know, uh, outside the hall where when we first see Ben Franklin, he's getting his portrait done. It looks just like it. And when the carriages start to pull up to Independence Hall, it looks just like Chestnut Street. You know, obviously a dirt road version of Chestnut Street. But it's like, my God, they, they really did their homework. So, yeah, I love 1776. It's incredibly well made. It's funny. Oh, and by the way, those songs are really – I'm not sure if you're aware of the story that um, there was – the song there's a song in a movie called Cool Considerate Men and let's go back to Richard Nixon who we were talking about earlier um, Jack Warner was a producer of the film and he was friends with Nixon and he showed Nixon an advanced copy of the film and Nixon was disturbed by that particular song Cool Considerate Men because it kind of gets into you know talking about <laughs> um, the left and the right and it kind of like um it's kind of satirizing the extreme right, and Nixon didn't care for that, and he asked Warner if he would remove it, and he did. So there were a couple of songs that were removed in the film. So the original theatrical versions and the original versions that ran on TV throughout the 80s and early 90s didn't feature that song. But when it was eventually re-released on Laserdisc and then DVD and then Blu-ray, all those songs were put back in. And I was just watching it again the other night, in fact. And uh, it's like, yeah, I can see why Nixon wouldn't be too crazy about this particular song. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I mean, so that movie has uh, a lot of political guts uh, in it, you know, um, and it's done in such a way as to be entertaining and not a dry history lesson. But yeah, like you said, this country has always been that way. There's even a line in the movie where Ben Franklin is talking about the need for independence and he's talking about how we're not Englishmen uh, anymore. We're Americans. We've started a new continent. We have a new culture, a new country, a new culture. Uh, we're rougher. We're more violent. Uh, yeah, I mean, he, he, you know, and I, I love how the character says it in the film, and it's true. We are a different kind of culture, and we have to work our shit out, but this isn't new. This country has always been like that. We've always managed to work our shit out, and I love how the movie gets into that, and that's what we need, uh, definitely need now, and I think that's something that everybody needs to think about when they go into the voting booth. Can you Hey, man. Yeah, man. Cool. Uh, <laughs> I dug this. This was great. So, it's going to wrap this bad boy up. Uh, I'm Craig Jamison of Gold Cottage Online. And I'm Jim Delaney from thelunchmovie.com. And thanks for joining us here at the Movie Sneak. Uh, see you again next time up on those cheap seats. Reminder that all film, music, and other clips are the rights and property of the copyright holders and are used here for entertainment, educational, and criticism purposes only. 